Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So how's the weather out there in beautiful Kings County, Washington? We've got your typical doom and gloom going on here in the Cascade Mountain Range. So by that, you mean low cloud cover and threats of rain? Yeah, we had a little windstorm blow through the other night that took down a lot of the beautiful leaves that we're observing right now. Mm. Uh, Looking out my window, I've got a lot of oranges and reds, and it's been really pretty. We had a gorgeous Halloween, warm and very pleasant for people that participated. That's nice to hear. I'm here in uh, southwestern Connecticut, and our leaves have come and gone. And all of my neighbor's leaves have come onto my yard. So I get to do some aerobic activity probably for the next month. But speaking of Halloween, I think about six or seven years ago when I stood behind a group of trick-or-treaters on a house in a nearby town. And when they finished, the man looked out at me and wondered what I was standing there on his uh, doorstep for. And I was dressed in a uh, full head-to-toe baseball uniform, baseball cap, uniform, cleats. And I had a bag and I said, trick or treat. And he looked at me and he says, aren't you old for that? I said, no, you don't get it. I'm asking you, do you want to be tricked or do you want to be treated? And he said, what? And I said, here. And I reached into my bag and I handed it to him. And it was a subpoena that nobody had been able to serve to him for about four months. Yeah. Sneaky. Yes. Yes, it was. But I always found, and I know I I said we weren't going to talk about field craft, but that has to be one of my most favorite process serves ever, that what day of the year are you guaranteed? Now, it's COVID, but so this happened a few years ago. But what day of the year are you almost guaranteed that somebody will open their door to somebody wearing a costume, right? Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It it is the only day. But anyway, I died. I, I was, yeah, I know. I loved it too. And actually he was upset with me. But then when I spoke to him about where I had gotten my baseball uniform and the story behind it, I found out that this gentleman had been writing a book about the Trumbull Little League team and that it was a Little League team that was this little team out of nowhere that went all the way to the finals of the Little League World Series. And he was writing this book 20 some years later and catching up with all the players that were 12, 11 and 12 years old at the time when they won the World Series. And he was writing a book about that retrospectively, of course, retrospectively, almost like a memoir. And uh, so we got really good conversations. So a guy that wanted to slam the door in my face when he got served, we ended up actually having a good conversation. And later on, I had a cup of coffee and we talked more baseball. So it it turned out okay. But anyway. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I digress. And the interview is, is how to rocket your private investigations business. So I like to hear about your business, how you got started, what your original idea was, and how you've uh, executed that game plan. So go ahead. So I think it was just about 18 years ago, I was in college, and I was actually a communications major studying mass media and interested in journalism. But at that time, newspapers were shutting down. And a girlfriend of mine was interning at a private investigative firm, primarily that does background investigations for positions of public trust and national security. And shortly after 9-11, they were hiring like crazy to meet the demand of the federal government. So I ended up securing an internship back then and fell into the investigative field Mm -hmm. and really just haven't left. At some point during my career, I think it was about in 2008, they picked up some public contracts with personal insurance 
personal injury insurance and locations for financial companies. At that time, we were locating people that owned owed money on student loans. Okay. So then they got us PI licenses because on the private side, we needed to have that in our state. And so I got some experience doing those cases, doing some surveillance. And then I also got some experience working as a volunteer for our local police department here doing, excuse me, warrant research and some other community outreach with the local police officer. So I gained more of a criminal justice side of experience and interest there. And so, uh, it's addictive, isn't it? Yeah. I learned a lot. And at one time I thought I wanted to be a police officer, but after volunteering and working closely with one, I realized how difficult and challenging a job it is and not quite the right fit for me. But anyhow, in 2013, I left my former employer that I had the PI license under and started as a self-employed contractor. Initially, I didn't have a license because I worked so, so little, primarily leaving due to raise my first kiddo. And so last year, and after it was actually my husband's idea, he said, why don't you get your PI license back and diversify? So I thought that's a good idea. So I'm going to, st- I started my LLC and I grouped in my federal contract work. And then I've started taking on private customers as well. Mostly I do background investigations for people who work or are going to be working at small businesses in the area. So just through my networking with some other small business owners, I've done background investigations for them. And occasionally I do some reputational online reputational searches for those positions as well. I do research for attorneys. I have a couple attorneys that call me, a couple financial companies that will use me for locates. That's, I think, about the gist of most of my private work. And I, I get the sense that it, a lot of it is online. Yeah, using various risk databases and court searches, and then, yeah, reputational searches. Mm. Through the- I don't know what it's like in, in Washington, and you're going to have to help me with this. Excuse me, I had a, I had a little cough too. But I have a devil of a time being able to give my clients a legitimate answer as to criminal history when the person has been living in different states over the Mm -hmm. last, maybe say 10 years. And that I know Connecticut like the back of my hand and I know what works and what doesn't work and where I have to get things in person or I have to do FOI or I can do it online. But I don't know anything about St. Louis, Missouri or Oshkosh, Wisconsin or Tupelo, Mississippi. And being part of a private eye network, I'm not afraid to ask, is there anything online? Is there something where I can be, is it on a state level? Is it on a county level? Do you have to do it? Do I have to do it in person? Or that's hard these days. Does somebody have to do it in person? And I find it to be still a crapshoot. For lack of Mm -hmm. a better word, I can't tell you. So I'm, I'm hesitant to give my clients criminal histories that are are supposed to be the be all end all. And when I look at the internet and I look at those pay sites for a credit card, you can find out about your ex, what's soon to be your ex-husband or, you know what I'm saying, uh, your prospective husband or whatever, or his prospective girlfriend or however. And I look at those sites and I cringe thinking that all they are doing is scraping maybe some public records that are easy to grab and don't really talk about 
what's truly there. So can you talk about that a little bit in terms of what your experience is with that up there in in uh, Washington? Yeah. So Washington has pretty much all of their court records online. However, in King County, there's a couple different databases we have to check because they're moving from one to another, but all of the old stuff is still listed in the former. So there's a bunch of different databases to check. So I typically check all of them. And then I do trust, I trust, but I verify. I'll do my national, let's say I'll use TLO, okay. I'll do a national search. And then anything that comes up, I'm going to try and verify that information. So I think I had somebody lately, I can't remember what county it was in California that had lived in California as well as Washington. Hmm. And it fell into the last seven years. Because here in Washington, I believe to do backgrounds for employment, you're only supposed to go back seven years, not before that. So I didn't want to give the employer anything outside of those parameters. We're (laughs) We're fortunate here in Connecticut in that even though the state police and the courts only maintain conviction records going back 10 years, we have a archival database here in Connecticut that that archives all that conviction activity. And also when there is, I want to say, an arrest, sometimes that information is leaves a digital footprint in the local paper. So even though Mm. you don't have a conviction showing up either on the state or the courts, you might come up with arrests and you read the arrest and you look at them and then it's possible to, in some cases, get FOI, Freedom of Information, to get those records and from the arresting municipality. And it gives you a much better picture of, of the individual you're dealing with. Now, how does that affect employment? I don't know in terms of what questions you can ask, what questions you can't ask. I think if I'm not mistaken, and this is more of your area than mine, that it's a conviction only is the only information that, that's allowable uh, to be listed on applications. And I believe even some applications restricted more to even felonies. Am I right about that? Because you've been in that world a lot more than I am. Yeah, there is a great resource that I search typically for that information. It's by Lester Rosen, the Safe Hiring Manual, which I have a copy of. And I usually peruse it when people ask me these questions, the mm-hmm. legal type questions. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Okay. I didn't mean to stump you on it, but, yeah. but, but the thing is saying to a client, oh, there's no record. Uh, that has to be the most dangerous answer that you can answer because obviously there's no record that your search produced. And I think that's a little correct. Bit yeah. I have a very lengthy disclaimer Okay, good. that I put at the end of all my reports and mm-hmm. even at the end of my emails that I picked up over the course of some training by another well-known investigator that does a lot of the reputational and background type searches for clients. Okay. I think I got it from Cynthia Hetherington. Hetherington. Okay, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I did some of her trainings last year to brush up on the private sector and she had a lot of good advice I oh, think absolutely. for somebody that's starting out in the OAT business, the background investigative business. And so a lot of the things that she does, I have I do myself mm-hmm. from her Meaning. training. So I think that's smart. You can give people, hey, I didn't find anything, but 
my information is only as good as the data that I'm that I'm pulling it from. Yeah. And, and that's absolutely true. And yeah, and that they have disclaimers. I think your errors and emissions insurance company is very happy that you have that too. Yeah. Think of situation where, you know, a daycare hires a, a known sex offender and then the proverbial what hits the what. And when the suit comes in, and it will invariably come in from a an aggrieved family member or parent, that's going to roll downhill towards you. And you say, how could that, mm-hmm. how, how could you have missed that? How could you have found it? Is it, was it, there's something about that the person might have been a, a sex offender in a different state, but not in your state. So it's an, it's a difficult thing. And I, I applaud any businesses that actually do take the time to do a legitimate background check and not a box, you know what I'm saying? A, a check mark, a check box, you know what I'm saying? So how do you, how, what's your feelings on that and that you give a, a bespoke or you give a custom background check versus the $99 special? I typically list out exactly what I checked mm-hmm. to the client. I say I checked the municipal district and superior court courts. I chase, checked the national sex offender registry, I checked this and this, and I spell it out for them exactly what I checked. They get a pretty thorough report on what exactly I looked at. And then I typically do ask the client, would you like me to look online for news articles, Mm -hmm. social media, and give you links to look at those? I give them the links and I let them look at them themselves to make a judgment call. I don't advise or give my opinion. For example, no, I, I understand, and I think in a an employment situation, an employer that slides a piece of paper across the table to the applicant, and it's a printout of something that appears on their social media feed that's for plain view, but for public consumption, and to say, would you mind commenting on this, please? Very powerful, and that it tells the applicant that there is a search going on there, there that there's something taking place. Do you ever work on tenant? backgrounds for uh, landlords? No, I have. I don't know if I really want to touch that here in Washington. <laughs> Why is that? May I ask? Is there? Is it a hot button? Oh, there's, especially in the city of Seattle, there's so many new regulations and mandates for landlords, uh, and they seem to constantly be changing. Most of them are based around discrimination. I see. I got it. No, but I, no, I haven't had any landlord landlord companies contact me. I'd probably prefer to work for attorneys or businesses. Mm-hmm. Any, be my- any type of backgrounds where a business is looking to see if they want to partner up with another entity or they want to see if somebody is a worthy candidate for making a biz- business decision with? I haven't had any yet, but I've definitely, in a couple networking groups that I've in, I've mentioned that. It's always healthy to look and see if who you're going to partner with has been in a variety of legal actions before you get involved with them. Absolutely. And that's, and I think in today's environment, it's not uh, so much as go grow. It's more of everybody has to be very careful about their next hire and has to be very concerned because obviously that next hire it, it could have a, a very serious impact on the bottom line of the company if things aren't aren't, aren't checked out, aren't done. And the cost of replacing these employees is you know astronomical when you have to run through a tur- run them through a turnstile. It seems I know that I, I think about these situations a lot, and I think that you're mentioning this at your networking groups is very commendable. I I recommend Business Network International for 
persons for private investigators in smaller, out-of-the-way locations because they might be the only private investigator showing up at a BNI. I also recommend uh, the Chamber of Commerce for leads groups so that you get into leads groups with other people that are in the service business. And that exponentially grows your uh, reach because these other people know that you, oh, Victoria, she's the private investigator. I can ask her, mm-hmm. how are you feeling? How do you feel that your networking is working? How do you think that's coming along? Leads from it. I think it's something like you said, I need to expand a little bit more like with the local chamber of commerce. But one thing Exactly what you said. I am the only private investigator in my networking group in my city. It's definitely, I think, a benefit to anyone who is new or up and coming that they join one or two. Because I just had someone email me this week that, hey, from your networking group, gave me your name, trying to find somebody, can you help me? So I think Mm -hmm. if people know you or they know about you, or they've, at one time we were meeting in person, now we're doing it all online. Mm -hmm. But getting your name out there and at least having people aware of what you're able to provide them Absolutely. as a service. Absolutely. People don't even necessarily think about what all capabilities a private investigator has. And what they think that it is they get from the movies or TV. And, exactly. Yeah. And I do quite a bit to dispel that mystique, quite frankly. We're professional. We're professionals and we belong to professional organizations. I saw from your website that you're a member of what the local Pally, is it uh, Wally? And then the North Northwest Private Investigators Association. Is that true? Yeah, there's a couple professional organizations here. There's the Washington Association of Legal Investigators, Wally, mm-hmm. and then there's the Pacific Northwest Association of Best Investigators, okay. PNAI. Okay. Both are great organizations. We all reach out to each other for advice and trade information through through email primarily. Mm. And there are trainings regularly during normal times from both of those does, uh, does organizations. W- does Wally have continuing education requirements that you have to have so many in order to keep your association? Or is it uh, a matter of just them offering that and you make yourself available of it? I think they, Wally primarily offers it. PNAI, I think it is a requirement to get eight hours of training per year. And they provide most of that, I believe. Over the last year since I've been with them, I just renewed with both those organizations. Things have been a little unique. Would Um, Would you recommend to the up and coming investigator that they seek out their local state association or a regional association to get involved and, and to be become a member? Oh, definitely. Because I have potential clients calling me for things that I don't necessarily provide. And I've gotten to know the other investigators in those groups. And I regularly refer people to investigators that do what they're seeking. Absolutely. So, yeah. I, I, had I a situ- think it's wise. Yeah. I had a situation just last week where I had a uh, client come to me with a very unique surveillance situation. And it was more of the type of surveillance that you would normally see in a corporate or business setting than you would see in a uh, matrimonial or custody situation. And the equipment requirements were a lot different and they were beyond my skill. Mm-hmm. Not It was beyond my skill set, but it was also beyond what, what I have in terms of equipment. And I put my client in touch with probably one of the best investi- surveillance investigators in the state. And 
when I, but before I did that, I wanted to say, hey, I'm going to run this idea behind you. Did, was I right to think that you're the right guy for it? And went on to tell me all the reasons why things I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's why it was so important that I realized that I did the right thing by not trying to take that case on and by referring it to a professional. And I'm a professional, but okay, I'm not a heart surgeon and I'm not a car mechanic. I leave those things to those people. And so I did the same thing there. And I think you'll, you stand taller in your client's eyes when you're able to say, that's not my area of expertise or specialty, but I do know somebody through my association relationships. That is, is that a fair way of saying it? Oh, completely. I think that's one of the things that I've learned is that to only take cases that you can do um, with your skill set and comfortably. Yeah. Uh, and that there are plenty of people in the industry that specialize in other things that are way better at. But on the same token, you also are upskilling yourself as well. Like you talked about learning, taking courses through uh, Cynthia and uh, you're getting better at OSINT, right? You're, so that's becoming more of a skill set. You're strengthening those muscles. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And yeah. And I definitely, I think I follow a lot of the people that are in that business because they're often sharing information on mm -hmm. LinkedIn and other places. So sure. List serves. It seems as if people in that business are more than happy to share. Yeah. And it's true. It is at this point in my career where yes, an old dog can learn new tricks. That is true. I can, but I'm thinking that if I were to have a blank slate again in front of me as to an investigative career, I might invest very heavily in OSINT and try to build a business following riding that tiger because I think that is has a tremendous upside to it. And I think if you're you have a specialty or an expertise in that you can be a you can attract the higher paying, faster paying clients. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Oh definitely. I think that if somebody is looking for a niche to get into that online forensics right now would be a great thing to specialize in knowing how to take information from cellular phones and computers and oh um, yes that's true using that in some kind of in in a variety of ways in civil cases and whatnot is, is a good niche to be in there's a couple people here in this area that seem to know a lot about that and if that was one thing that i was going to expand into i would do that yeah, that's it. I, I, I also I'm not geeky that way. I have to say uh, I'm not a I'm not a, a tech guy, and I'm not I'm certainly not a gadgets guy or gal. Let's face it. I want to be a proper person. And <laughs> but there are people that just drool when they talk about that in in my associations. So I'm like, okay, they really love this stuff, and and they geek out on it. Let them go for it. And uh, but I understand what you're saying. That in terms of future thinking, OSINT or forensic examination of tech, smartphones and laptops and, and anything that could be, that would have any kind of a memory chip that could give you a readout, black boxes from cars, you name it, trucks, you're going to start getting that from appliances now pretty soon. But yeah. And, and for the people that are interested in that and excited about that, I think that is the, you know, the way of the future that you can come in and wave your wand or do your thing and plug this thing in or do a mirror image of that, man, you're going to, you can name your, you can name your price. So I don't disagree with you on that. You talked about how you gravitated back into this again with your husband's, not, I want to say urging, but suggestion. How important is it to have uh, somebody in your corner that says, hey, you can do this and you can, you should, you're good at this and you should think about it. How important that, is that to you? 
decided to do it had he not suggested it. I know I put you on the spot there, but what I'm thinking is that having a significant other or a family member or family or your circle of influence to be in your corner and to say, yeah, this is a good idea. I think you should do it. Uh, I think it, it helps people get through the rough patch. And there always is a rough patch, right? There's always a lean times or there's always a time when things aren't going exactly the way you want to. And then you got somebody in your corner saying, hey, take a breather. You can do this. You're okay. You can do this. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think everyone in my family thought it was a good idea. They were all cheering me on and sharing my new business when it came about. I think navigating all of the processes and procedures of opening your own business can be daunting. Mm -hmm. And, and as a federal contractor, I had to do register with SAM, which is the federal government's management system for people that contract with them and navigating the licensing department in Washington was very slow. So I, I think my past experience having worked on the federal side gave me the whole experience of the hurry up and wait and eventually okay. everything will work out. But, but then, then it again, took them three months to approve me. Really? Yeah. 22 years oh, ago. Yeah. When I went, even though they all they had to do was look at my old license. Oh my God. That's all? That's all they had to do. I finally got the right person on the phone. No, uh, I say 22. It was actually but, uh, 23 years ago. The hoops I had to jump through for Connecticut was unbelievable. It was incredible. I had to get affidavits from neighbors, from people in the business community. I had to give a certified DMV search, certified credit report. I had to uh, fill out a very lengthy application. I had to show real documents of work experience in as an investigator. It was quite a thing. And I have this license and it's a card license with my picture on it. I've had one every year for or every two years. They they do it every two years here in Connecticut. But yet everywhere the I have to go to deal with the state in Connecticut. Anytime they ask for an identification card from me, I show them my private license. And what's the first thing they ask for? They ask for my driver's license. And it's no, this is my PI license. I have to pay, <laughs> I have to pay a thousand dollars every two years for it. Let me, can you, and it's a state ID. No, we need your driver's license. And it's, oh, kills me. It does. It kills me. <laughs> it does. And of course, if you want to go into a jail and you want to see something, you want to see a witness or a client in a, in a correctional facility, you're not going to argue with the people that are going to say yes or no to you over the fact that you have a state issued ID, but they still want your driver's license. You're not going to, not going to go there. So anyhow, I, I digress, but it's just, it's so crazy. So what about getting your accounting software set up? Do you use a CRM? Is there any other things that you had to get, get upskilled on in order to feel that you could be your own I'm more old school. I keep a handwritten journal of all my expenses. Okay, general journal. Uh, yeah, I, I prefer it that way. I keep printout receipts of everything as far as money going in, money going out. And then I have an accountant that is also my you know, registered agent. And okay. They help me with my quarterly taxes and, and year-end reports. Yeah. So keeps you out of trouble with Uncle Sam. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I employ a CPA too. I, I, you know, me versus the IRS. No, I lose. I'm sorry. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care how good I am or how meticulous I am with my record keeping. No, 
they'll just grind me down. But uh, I feel that way too. Anything. So, how, so it's been it's been several years now since you've created your own business. We talked a little bit off air about the challenges that you've had during COVID. Can you talk about how you've dealt with them and how you've overcome them, or if you've made any changes as a result of it? Have I made any changes? I don't know if I necessarily made any changes, but. Yeah, like I told you, I contract to some federal agencies to do field background investigations. And typically those are all required to be in-person interviews with subjects and sources. Mm-hmm. And since Washington was hit first with COVID, there was a few weeks where we were in limbo because a lot of the companies that do federal contract work here were sending their employees home to work from home. And I had a period of time where I had to wait for permission to do these interviews by telephone if they wanted them to ever be done. So luckily they came around and the rest of the country started dealing with the same issues. And so we've been doing most of our work telephonically or some of the full-time employees, they do them virtually over Mm -hmm various Microsoft Teams and and whatnot, things like that. And I think the Um, the kind of questioning that you're doing lends itself a little bit better to a phone interview because when you frame the issue with the person that's on the other end of the line, they have an idea of what you're doing and why you're doing it so that it's not, you're not asking them about an intersectional accident or about being a witness to a, a murder. This is more about employment, what I understand, and background. Yeah, yeah. And and it's certainly possible to do them all by telephone. I think most of the questions have, when I'm calling somebody off the cuff, they don't really know that I am who I am. Typically, we're identifying ourselves with government ID. And when we can't show them that, I've had some people question that I'm legitimate. So that's made things more challenging in some respects, getting cooperation from sources who may not know that we're going to be contacting. But really, other than that, it's been pretty smooth. The reason I asked was because the way I framed it was I I deal mostly with what would be street interviews of people that are witnesses to events that take place versus what I understood you to be doing something where it's almost as if the witness your your witnesses are expecting a phone call from somebody like such as yourself that they've been told ahead of time that they would be they would be named in this matter and that they should be expect a call. Am I how am I wrong on this or am I is it not the case? Not necessarily. Sometimes we're contacting people that we've developed through the course of an investigation, so they might not necessarily be expecting us to call them. So there's that. But a lot of times if people are putting somebody on as a reference, they've typically given them a heads up, but not everybody actually does. That. Okay. Now, I know I chased you into the weeds on that and went over it again a second time because as a student of interviewing, I understand that you lose so much in 2020 by calling on the phone as opposed to knocking on a door. And I know this is, this gets away from our business a little bit, discussion about business a little bit, but it is, I think it does talk about business in the sense of you're trying to get information for a client to help them with a decision or to learn something. And if the best way to do that was lost to you because of the hysteria over COVID in the beginning, which I understand it was hysterical and those, and the rest of the country was just waking up to what was going on in Washington. And then to then make a decision to do these over the phone as opposed to in person. The phone, from what I remember, 40 years ago, 
working the phones was not out of the ordinary. But now a phone is an interruption for somebody, actually. Do you feel that way? And they don't recognize it. Oh, for sure. Most people let their phone calls, they let them go to voicemail. Right. They don't even answer. Yeah. and uh, Why are you calling me and not texting me? (laughs) Exactly. And so then I... And my millennial son has said to me, now follow up after you leave a voice message, follow up immediately with a text. And then I said, why? I left a voice message because people don't listen to their voice messages, dad. And I said, okay. So I leave a voice message and then I text and say, please call me. I didn't want to leave too much of a message here, especially on the generic phones. It's You get the phone company's generic message. You don't know if you're leaving a message for Joe Jablotnik or somebody in that is not Joe Jablotnik. It's a totally different person. You don't want to be leaving important information about this, sometimes about the, the nature of your call. You want to be as generic as possible oh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then it's, it's very difficult. But anyway, so the phone, I think the phone approach now has become a, a skill set in itself post-smartphone. In other words, ring phone, dial phone, landline, that was one way of talking to people. But now it's, it, it, takes on a yeah. di- it takes on a different skill set to do that. And I think, if anything, the present environment of COVID has made it make, make you, sh- you have to be sharper at doing that because you have to be very careful how you frame the issue and how you open up your conversation with a person, even if you get to that point even if you get to that point, because of the way the smartphone mm-hmm. is. But anyway, but you feel that you're able to conduct the, mo- the majority of your investigations now, or do you think people are getting more used to the phone now and uh, as opposed to door knocks? I think people realize it's temporary. And I'm pretty sure that my federal government customers will for sure go back to the in-person process when things are resolved with our health crisis. I think it's temporary. And it's been a little bit nice to be able to kick back and just work in my office and not have to wear a suit and mm-hmm. have my hair mm-hmm. and makeup on and <laughs> be ready to go. It's been a little bit of a nice break, especially with all the other things I'm juggling at home with kids and school learning at home. Oh boy. But I don't, I, I, I don't envy ready. you. I I'm don't, gonna be, <laughs> don't envy you. I'm going to be ready to get back out there. And knock on some doors and yeah. I call it pounding the pavement. Yeah, I agree with you. Shoe leather. A lot of shoe leather. I, I I can understand why that would be appealing based upon your situation. Getting out of the house and just having to talk with another adult would be nice. But I get that. I, I can appreciate yeah. that. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Victoria. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know we went a little deeper into the actual part of your work that you do. But I think it, it's important for the listeners to understand that this is a very unique business that you run. And that it has its own trials and tribulations, and it, it hasn't gotten better with with the virus, COVID virus. But it, you've had to make ad, adaptations, and it seems like you're doing okay. So, what's next for you? Can you talk about what the future holds for Victoria and your company, Blue Eagle Investigations? Am I right? Yeah, Blue Blue Eagle Security Solutions. Okay. I, I think what's next for me is I'm hoping some day, sometime down the road, I might work on my certified fraud examiner's certificate and possibly expand a little bit more when I have more time. And I also, my other goal is to do a little bit more marketing with attorneys in the area. Okay. And uh, and then you'll find out what Those their are needs are. Those are my goals. And, mm-hmm. well, it sounds, sounds yeah, good. Yeah. I appreciate that. Now, how can people reach you? Oh, they can reach me. Do you want my phone number? Well, <laughs> no, I think <laughs> that, email, how about your website? website? And they can hit the contact button on your website. How's that sound? 
Sure. My website is www.blueeaglesecuritysolutions.com. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Victoria. And I thank you so much. You're quite welcome.